0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Murray Peters, an actor you might know from her appearances on Sea and Transplant and the Parker Andersons' Amelia Parker, on which she was also a writer and story editor. And this week, her first work as a writer-director, the short film Woman Meets Girl, is premiering on the same day, Saturday, February 18th at both the Toronto Black Film Festival and Queer Screen's 30th Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney, Australia. I mean, that's pretty cool. Murray picked The Menu, Mark Mylod's satirical thriller about a group of people who arrive for a special dinner at Hawthorne, a very famous restaurant where the very famous chef has planned a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for everyone. If you haven't seen The Menu yet, you should probably stop listening to this episode before I spoil the hell out of it. Uh, There is no way to discuss the film without directly addressing its plot. so. If you haven't seen it, put this on the shelf until you're caught up. Everybody else, take a seat, put your napkin on your lap and get ready to dig in. That was incredibly corny, but this is someone else's movie.
1: As a kid, I definitely had that experience of like going to the movie store and watching movies over and over again, catching them when they're on TV and like whatever. But I would definitely say that over the last, mm, maybe five to 10 years, I've definitely become one of those people who is like, I don't really watch anything more than once. Um, but the menu is, I think one of the most recent films, uh, that I have seen a second time fairly recently. So I saw it the first time during TIFF and then I saw it again, uh, mm, I think it was early this year. Okay. And, uh, yeah, like I was just thinking back to like all the movies that I've seen recently and it just really stood out to me. And, and I think that was also sort of one of my main takeaways from my whole TIFF experience this year, that like the movies that stood out to me the most were the ones that had something surprising about them and had something like an unpredictability to them. Like I never felt like I was ahead of the story or like could not have predicted where anything went. Uh, Okay. But I'm also the type of person who like, I like to go into movies relatively blind. Like I don't like watching movie trailers. I don't even really like reading reviews. Um, uh, maybe I'll read the like little one sentence blur, maybe, but usually it's like, oh yeah, I heard somewhere that it was on some list or something. So I'm just going to go and see it. And I definitely feel that this in particular is one of those movies where it's like, you kind of just got to go see it.
0: <laughs> I, I'm going to just be a pure narcissist for a second. Did you, did you see the show that I introduced at, at the festival? Cause no. I got to, they threw me in to host the, to introduce the world premiere, which on the, on the stage of the Royal Alex, which was great and weird. And. My first big intro, I think it might have actually been my first introduction, full stop, because it was like the oh, yeah. Saturday night. Um, and it was the same thing. They give you a list of notes and things you can say and things that the studio wants you to say. And I was sort of like, I don't know that I can tell anybody anything about it. Like, you shouldn't. You mm. shouldn't know. You should know as little as possible. Because even when I'm doing the intro for this episode, I'm going to have to kind of walk a fine line for all the people who haven't seen it. But the other yeah. thing that's so weird and precious about the menu is that it's a one joke movie, right? Like it Mm -hmm. only has the one idea, but it's played out in all these different permutations for the, for the entire film. So if you explain what that is also it short circuits the the whole thing. So I had to, I just basically introduced the director, Mike Mylad, and he came out and thanked everybody, but didn't actually say anything about the film either. And it was just (laughs) really fun to watch him navigate that even more
1: elegantly than
0: I had. So how did it play? How did it play for your screening?
1: Uh, I went to the p screening, I'm pretty mm.
0: sure. Um,
1: yeah, so like I said,
0: it just kind of- Famously reserved crowds.
1: Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> But I think that you could sort of, you could feel like the energy of the space and like people not knowing what was coming next and being surprised at all the twists and turns. And like the second time I saw it, I did, it was also sort of like a private screening, I guess, but it was like with more like public audience, I guess. Um, And it's just, you know, that energy of like watching the people around you when you know, like the big thing is about to happen. And like I had a friend with me and like watching her reactions to everything was like almost better than watching the movie.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've done that a couple of times. It is always yeah. fun. And and yeah. this one too because generally what I found talking to people about it afterwards was that it's a really simple litmus test, right? Like there are people who thought it was mean and mm. not for the reasons I would have expected, which was like the sort of characterizations were broad or the satire was was too on point or people people like the objections that I've heard over the film have been those nice people just wanted to have some dinner. <laughs> and it's like, you missed something.
1: Yes. <laughs> Clearly absolutely. missed a
0: key moment in this film.
1: Yeah. It like, were we watching the same movie?
0: <laughs> so this is this is a sort of an outgrowth of the Adam McKay machinery that produced Succession and Mark Mylod had directed a number of episodes mm-hmm. of that show. Are you a fan of that? Was there was there a way into this? Was it
1: uh, I had no idea about any of that connection until after I watched the oh, cool. uh, movie like like i said i tend not to read much about anything before i see it and then afterwards if i really liked it or there's something about it that i found particularly distasteful i guess sometimes i will then go and like look further and try to understand like oh what were they thinking here who made this what else have they done yeah so Um, this was a
0: literal blind entry for you you just went to see a film yeah oh fantastic okay i mean like there's usually a hook (laughs) during the festival for people to but yeah that, that used to be my experience too you just go from press screening to press screening and just Totally. You you know, get whatever served to you.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course, having the um, industry pass too, it's just like, there's so many movies and so many screens to go to that I think I might have seen it on some kind of list of like top 10 or top 25 movies to like look out for. So I maybe had it in the back of my head that I was like, okay, just put this on the list. Um, But yeah, not really knowing what it was going to be about or what to
0: expect with it. Oh, wow. So it's the kind of film that no, that's not fair either. I'm just making all these assumptions about, but I'm trying to protect it in my head from people listening, Like for people listening, yeah. and not and not blow the experience. Oh,
1: for sure. Though it sort of feels like one of those you put the disclaimer beforehand, and you're like, you should watch the movie before you listen to this. Yeah. Otherwise, that's on you.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when did you kind of key into it? When did it? When did it start to be rewarding as an experience? Was it the? Was it the big speech? Was it the revelation? Because when I first saw it, it was. With an audience of maybe seven people, and every single oh, wow. person reacted like at a different point in the screening, and then I got mm. to I got to experience it again with an audience of like a thousand people and watch them kind of murmurate like like flocks of sparrows as it sort of ran through the rooms. Like oh, people would figure out things were going, and it was a really vocal crowd, which was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes for a great
1: experience. Um. Hmm. I think the moment for me when I realized really that like, Oh yeah, I have no clue what is going to, what this movie is going to be. Um, was the whole, was the sous chef when he came out and like did his speech. right? That I think was like major turning point in, uh, in my expectations of what type of story I was about to embark on.
0: Yeah. And it was helpful too, because it's like, Oh good. It's not cannibalism. Like whatever <laughs> else is coming. Cause that's what you assume. Right like I definitely did not thing. think that. Oh no, that's hilarious. I just going in from the like just from the, the single sentence treatment and then the presentation of all of it that the even the idle conversations on the boat about how everyone has their place and everything is a position it's just like, oh, they're gonna eat these people. Mm. they just somebody's gonna mm. get eaten and the, the the fact that that surprised me that oh no, we're not doing that. whatever it is you thought this was, it's not this. Um, that was really refreshing because it it felt like, you know, like we were in this wave of movies where capitalism, the wealthy, nouveau riche, all of these, these aspects of the way the state of the world is going right now are, it's kind of open season on anyone Mm -hmm. with a wallet, uh, Mm -hmm. which fair, (laughs) I don't have a real problem with it. Uh, but things like triangle of sadness and going back a couple more years, like, Generally, as a rule, whenever there's something in the air, you can see the thing that started it a few years earlier. And there was that little wave of Ready or Not and Parasite. And there was a Mm. third one, I think, at Christmas, three films back to back that were all about rich people getting a comeuppance of some sort. Mm. And now we're swimming in it. And the fact that they're not literally eating these people who are, you know, they're probably pretty marbled, they're probably fairly. Tender. Uh, that was a nice reveal for me. And that it was a film about that's as much about the absurdity of uh, culinary cults as capitalism cults. And the idea that you really should just try to, you know, live a decent life and enjoy a hamburger or a cheeseburger specifically. It's kind of not the worst moral message to put out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. Um, so you did see Triangle of Sadness. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I saw, I think I saw Triangle before I saw the menu, um, and so maybe I sort of expected the menu to be a little bit more like that.
0: Oh, I see. Um, That's true. They're both about wealthy people on an island. When you think about, it. like, if you step back yeah. a little bit,
1: like, not to say that Triangle didn't have a bunch of like interesting twists and turns, and like it was, of course, also one of my favorite movies from this Tiff season. Uh, but there was definitely a more, um, I don't know. Evenness to the storytelling than than there was with uh, the menu, and so I expected it was going to be more more of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ostlin does these very calm studies of stereotypes. He's sort yeah. of Michael Haneke's weird cousin, to my mind. Like Haneke hates everybody, including the audience. You show up and you've made him mad, but. Osland. I mean, if if you've seen Force Majeure, like Oslin is just delighting in picking apart the concepts of a nuclear family, a hu- responsible husband and and caring wife, and just turning them up on their ear. And the satire is very direct. And then the menu is all about understanding who these people are mm-hmm. uh, and how they deserve what's coming. I revisited it once it hit um, Disney Plus, which is still a really weird place for that movie to show up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and I was really happy with the script i hadn't caught quite as much the first time through about just the way it tips its hand towards the morals and the in the uh kind of the artificial um cultural concerns that are constructed for the characters and, and how as as big of a leap it is to ask us to believe that well i guess we'll go straight into spoilers that that a chef can be so talented that he can build an entire cult around his work that is willing to kill themselves for the concept of purity Mm -hmm. for someone else's concept of purity um and that's when it sort of tips into the absurd but the absurd works in this case
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um and if you're going to do that you need ray fines like you need someone who can do that uh, on camera and be you know dominating and insane while also somehow Self-aware and human and fun. Like he makes yeah. it fun, which is so wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's so good in that. I think the entire cast was really good.
0: Yeah, no, it was a blast. Um, to to I mean, you get to see judith the Light be terrible but quietly. Mm-hmm. Um, Javi from Broad City is there. I mean, you just it, it's it's this fun rollout. We um we didn't get the whole cast here, which was a shame. But uh, I just it was fun watching everybody on the stage, just sort of giggling at what they were about to unleash on people. Because Judith Light shows up in a room and people remember her fondly from 40 years of television and they applaud mm-hmm. and everything's great. And then it's just like, oh, you have no idea. You have no idea what she's going to do on <laughs> And she's in a poker face this week or last week where she plays a horrible person. And again, just loving it. She is having yeah. the best time. This is a good window for her. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So are you on board with the Anya Taylor joy of it all? given the the arc of her character and the fact that she's a replacement for someone it felt deliberate that she styled like Anna Kendrick for the whole movie like she's like the movie is yeah. almost trying to tell us we wanted Anna Kendrick but couldn't get her so we have this instead and i think that's part of the joke i don't think they really did want anna kendrick but she reads weird her hair color is wrong she doesn't yeah. look like she's looked before and i found that really fascinating
1: yeah 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 absolutely yeah i never really thought of like the Anna Kendrick of it all. But I definitely found myself kind of wondering um, just like how much, how much of it was planned on his part and how much of it was kind of improvised once he realized that she was there. Like the whole, like when he sends her off to get the barrel or whatever, yeah. it's like, well, to what extent did he know? Like, you know, like what if that was already planned that he wasn't going to tell his, um, like the maitre d' that like he wasn't going to tell her to go get it and like have her like go chase anya and like all of that stuff that i was like interesting yeah like how much of a genius is <laughs> like how like how much is he playing chess above our heads you know what i mean
0: yeah or if you position yourself with a certain effect do people just assume you're brilliant and you're making it up as yeah. you go, know, right that's that's the thing about fines who i've, I've interviewed him a few times and he's weirdly self-conscious as a person. And I think it's just because he broke with Schindler's List. And so he assumes everyone expects him to be serious and intimidating. But if you get him talking about Shakespeare or, um, was one other time we talked about, it, he was talking about a car and he just became himself and sort of mm. became natural and excitable. So I think he works very hard to maintain this mm. this uh, presence around people, but he is at his best when he's playing something that's mildly comic, right? Like the Grand Budapest Hotel or uh, even Hail Caesar. And here, where he's playing someone who is absolutely unbending, but we as the audience get to understand that he knows he's in on the joke. Like Mm -hmm. it's not stunt casting. He wants to do this. And he makes it, I can't even picture who else they might have. It's one of those things where you see the film and you can't conceive of another actor playing the role. And I'm sure there could have been. But he is just so much fun.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
0: And then you get the the wider space of Nicholas Holt being I don't know when he discovered he he's somebody you want to punch in the throat, but he's like he can play that role. Maybe Fury Road. But he's he's just so good at being unworthy of sympathy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you just, you know, take my hand and tell lead me wherever you want to go, because I, I I know something bad is going to happen to him and I can't wait. It's it's great. Like you you are you're sort of freed to root for the bad guys or for mm. for chaos to win because it still feels like it's some kind of world's coming back into balance.
1: To that point though, do you think there are you know good guys in this movie? <laughs>
0: Well, it's funny because as a, as a film critic, I'm supposed to believe in the artists, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. and, and you're expected, I mean, even in fine dining, it is presumed that everyone knows what they're doing, right? Like you mm-hmm. hear about these apprenticeships and people who work under this chef and that chef, and then they go open their own places. And, and this is where I have to disclose that my oldest friend in the world, who I've known since we were three, married a chef and he hates all this stuff he is mm. absolutely opposed to the idea of the chef as god and he would probably be able to compel a select group of people to do this for him but wow. <laughs> but he understands that this power is bad and i'm dying to know what he thinks of this film i know i yeah. must have it now. And i i don't want to i haven't brought it up because i don't want to know <laughs> but i also really do it's it's been really interesting to watch this movie come out and I will say that other than the murdering, there's nothing in it that isn't credible. Like they got the food right. They got the process right. They got the, the sense of the yes chef immediacy right. That's it's not satirical in that vein. And that's really mm. I think that really works because you you hear about these places where, you know, you have to walk to the top of a mountain in uh, or or Find uh, the greatest sushi bar in Japan is in a to- is near a Tokyo subway station. It's just one guy. And let's make mm. a documentary about that. Uh, and there's a film called Come Back Anytime that came out a couple of years ago. That's about the greatest ramen restaurant in in Japan, and it's just a guy with a counter. But it's the greatest not because of the food, although that's part of it. It's the greatest because his customers love him and they keep coming, and so people make mm. movie about it. And the menu takes that culture and just presents it normally and it's the acolytes, it's the fans who are weird, right? Like it's the diners who are deserving of punishment and the the chef it insists is working at its purest version, even though he's gonna kill people.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think in many ways it makes me think of just celebrity culture in general mm. and like how I think it's so strange. <laughs>
0: it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Criterion's new 4K restoration of Krzysztof Kieślowski's Brilliant Three Colors Trilogy and Arrow's Blu-rays of Nico Mastarakis' Trash Epics, Nightmare at Noon, and Dotcom for Murder. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Look, I have to write about movies, otherwise my head falls off. Come check it out.
1: You know, just like the thought of lining up for hours to to catch a glimpse of someone or like anything like that, to me just seems so bizarre.
0: Yeah, I th- I agree. And and I'm you know having been inside it a bunch of times over the years, it's it's really weird. Mm. Like nobody signs up for the Taylor Swift treatment. Taylor Swift doesn't want this. She can't mm. leave her house without two thousand people chasing her. Yeah, um, it's all toxic and awful and parasitic. And celebrity chefs, I think, are slightly better off at this because they are, by definition, they are removed. They're behind the kitchen window. You can't get them. Mm-hmm. And the ones who chase the spotlight tend to be motivated by, by something that isn't cooking, like something else that, that isn't the, the process, that isn't the art that they've put themselves in. I mean, I kind of admire Terrence Malick for leaving a room when a camera comes out. He's mm. just, he doesn't make a big thing out of it. He just removes himself. There's this video of, of him uh, and Christian Bale talking uh, on the set of, I guess it was Knight of Cups, one of the movies he made about 10 years ago and the camera crew clearly doesn't know who he is. They want to talk to Bale and Malik just sort of drifts away into the background. Mm. And I thought of, I thought of Malik a lot in Fine's performance because he has humanity, He's clearly interested in things, but he's also depressed and exhausted and, and sick of it all. And I, while I don't think Terrence Malick will ever lock me in the screening room and set the, the screening room on fire, I, I kind of wouldn't blame him if he did at this point in his career.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I definitely can't help but think about like, obviously, my my only experience with like fine dining, I guess, comes from like watching television or movies and like whatever. But there definitely seems to be. You know, like my brother and I, when I was younger, we used to watch uh, Hell's Kitchen together all the time. And now on my TV, there's like, there's like this free channel thing that just like comes on whenever you turn on the TV. And for whatever reason, it's a channel that plays Hell's Kitchen 24 hours a day. (laughs) (laughs) It knows you. Totally. So I've been catching like little glimpses of it recently. And it's just that thing of like the weird hierarchy of it all and this kind of like acolyte thing that like as much as like the, there is an absurdity in the like we're going to kill people at this restaurant but the, at the same time you're like is it really that much of a stretch because i feel like the people who work in those environments seem to have like such a strange devotion to the chef like i don't know if you've been watching the bear at all
0: no i've been meaning to catch up but i understand it is similarly mm. the cult of the kitchen yeah is very very is very prominent
1: yeah which is super fascinating and like makes you wonder like why why did it develop that way and does it have to be that way Let's like, to your friend's point
0: oh i yeah he definitely doesn't think it needs to be that way mm. uh you don't what was it you don't have to work someone to death so you can make a decent steak and yeah. you know he's right you don't un- unless the steak is from the person and even then you want to you want them to be nice and tender which again is something i'm glad the menu doesn't do because it feels kind of obvious where it goes instead this big baroque ending it almost like I did. um We did an episode on the cook the thief his wife and her lover about a month ago. Uh, Peter Greenaway's film about um, uh, a monstrous gangster in Thatcher's England in London who patronizes this elaborate French restaurant and sort of uses it as his playground. Doesn't appreciate any of it, but pays for it because he can afford it. Mm-hmm. And the the, the the toxic back and forth between the patron and the chef and and all of the things that happen and as a result of, of greed and depravity and the menu feels like the very graceful answer song to that. You know, like mm, you don't have to make a big thing out of it. You just have to isolate the crooks and punish them. And I don't think anybody in that movie has a good healthcare plan. I think they probably <laughs> abandoned that by then. I'm mean, what they, they all live together. They all work together. They all yeah. chew the meat together. And I yeah. was just really glad when, when she gets to the smokehouse and we realize it is actually livestock, it's animals, not people. Cause again, it could have been at that point in the film, but the showmanship of it, that's a quality that I recognized from actual restaurateurs. You know, like the idea that it's no longer enough to make the best fried chicken or the perfect little oyster sandwich. I'm just listing the Dutch's menu now cause I'm hungry. Um, and, you have to give people the environment. You have to let them be seen. You have to let them feel that they'll be seen. Like it's all part of it. And mm-hmm. Leguizamo yammering about how he knows the chef and, and how, and, and I'm, I'm, I am a little sorry that John Leguizamo isn't called John Leguizamo that he's playing a fictional yeah. version of himself. Cause that'd just be funny. Yeah. Totally. And we'd let it go. The audience would get it. We know that's not really who he is, but the the sense that these people are there for the cachet rather than the meals that they can't, you know, like it's, it's a plot point. They can't remember the last thing they ate there. The mm. um, the the experience of being the patron and having been seen there is all that they're really chasing. And it doesn't matter how expensive it is because they'll do it anyway. And For
1: sure. And it's like they kind of want it to be more expensive. Yes. You know, like if he was like, actually, today we're going to charge you an extra $1,000. They'd be like, yes, please.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do I get to keep my napkin? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And it's the the price of everything, value of nothing thing, right? Where where there's just this entire level and it is, this is the thing that I keep grappling with. It is a really simplistic satirical perspective, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just it draws a line between the audience who, you know, you paid 12 bucks to see this, you're cool, you get it. And the um and the characters who are obscenely wealthy and connected and undeserving of anything that, that comes to them, except that they're still getting a really good dinner. They just mm. can't enjoy it, which I like. I, I, I think that's great. The, you know, we are, we are invited to enjoy their discomfort uh, on our side of the screen. Yeah, totally. And then, and then to, to cheer for Anya Taylor-Joy as she figures out how to get out of it. Spoilers again. But the idea that simply expressing a desire for an uncomplicated meal, is the goal like is it's 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 somebody said it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory where the whole thing is a test. She doesn't get to keep the restaurant; she just gets to live. Yeah, I don't like that. I wish I'd thought yeah, of that one maybe, myself.
1: That's an interesting parallel. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the entire kind of film is sort of like a, an admonition of like capitalism and everything that goes into creating this allure of. I don't know whatever fine dining is supposed to represent and everything mm-hmm. that goes into it and the and the rigidity of it all and like the almost military esque ness <laughs> of the entire system um, and I guess ultimately that's probably why he ends up letting her go because it's the it's the you're the you're the everyman who is out there just trying to live the live the moments of life and not being so caught up in the spectacle of life.
0: Yeah. And I love the lack of judgment of Margot, which isn't her real name anyway, but still, um, that, that she is an escort. And that's, I think, something we're supposed to, or at least it's like a fake out for the audience to to judge her. And then it simply mm. refuses. The movie just doesn't go there, which is, which is great, because honest work is honest work. Um, and watching... Taylor Joy negotiate that space where she is expecting to be challenged all the time and never gets mm. it is a really interesting aspect of her performance. She's Her mm. back is up, and you can't tell why, and I thought maybe it's a working class thing, but then Slowik respects that too, and, and finds and Taylor Joy have this great little anti-chemistry. Somebody else was convinced that it was going to turn out he was her father. but
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. My, my mind never went there.
0: No, it's like they're both English, but other than that, I don't see it. <laughs> audience well, watch but um, it's such an odd it's an odd pitch uh, because I'm double checking this but yeah Emma stone was originally going to be the star really interesting yeah. two years before the pandemic uh, two years before production she and fines yeah. were on were the first ones and I thought initially when I heard that I mean, like I heard it after the fact I thought she was supposed to have played that stone was going to play Hong Chow's role mm. because that would have been Kind of anti casting where you have this Mm -hmm. megawatt star as the, as the, 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 yeah, well, like in the background all the time. So your eye would be drawn to her. And Hong Chao does that too because she's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
0: yeah. In everything she does. But then I found out it was to play Anya Taylor Joy's role. It's like, "Uh, she's almost, she's almost too old. I mean, we'd buy it, but she's got a good six or seven years on Anya Taylor Joy, I think. And, Mm. and, it would change the dynamic but having taylor joy who is the right age to maybe be slug's daughter changes things again and and now it's like yep i want her i don't want i don't i don't even want Anna kendrick in that role i, yeah, I think it's totally, great for this totally totally totally
1: yeah and i think that like taylor joy has this like enigmatic quality to her like i saw uh what was it last night in soho
0: yeah oh that's a good one that
1: was earlier last that was last year, too, wasn't it?
0: Uh, yes. Well, out. year and yeah. half. Yeah. There's the Northman in between the two as well.
1: Okay. Yeah, and you can sort of see sort of hints of a similar kind of mm, allure of, like, mystery about the character, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, her skill, I think, is that her eyes are so big and expressive, Maybe. but she doesn't give much away. Like, she's really good at being reserved and, and holding back. Uh, or suffering, like in The Witch, which was the first thing I think I'd seen her in. Mm, yeah, same. She just lives this misery. And it's a fantastic performance, and it's wide open. And then realizing, oh, no, she can turn herself off. That's interesting, mm. too. The film seems to know it needs faces. It needs the character actor thing where people who are vaguely recognizable. I mean, I've seen Paul Adelstein in Or Adelstein? I guess it's Adelstein. in dozens of television shows and things, and, and he always sort of has this bland It's not an insult. He's, he's called upon to be the husband or the partner or the guy at the desk. He doesn't command a scene, but having him mm-hmm. here allows you to immediately know, oh, that's who that guy is. The um, same for Reed Burney, who's who plays White Privilege in every movie he makes these days. <laughs> uh, but he's cast for that and he's good at it, so mm-hmm. it works immediately and that's the other thing too is there's this weird um power dynamic right away with all these exacting rules and all these things you have to comply with and and even getting on the boat has its own conditions and you're just watching actors not be able to own the scene and that becomes their entire defining quality in their roles it's really fascinating to unpack it from the a casting perspective as well as just the way it's shot and the way it's paced Mm -hmm. It really is just like, a, it's. you're watching these people be slow roasted. They're just not gonna get eaten. I keep coming back to yeah. cannibalism, it's weird.
1: <laughs> well, cannibalism is pretty hot these days, it seems. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, like I think I often find myself recently just being like, oh, I wish I could go back to the days where I could watch movies and like not recognize a single person in them and just like be lost in the film. But I would definitely say that in this case, Though I recognize many of the cast members, I didn't ever feel like it detracted me or distracted me from the film or my intrigue in it or anything. So,
0: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's part of the that's part of the genius of it of the yeah. of the construction. And then you've got you know Peter Deming, who's the guy who shot Lynch's Lost Highway, um, just just a and on Drive too, I think. And he's just got this great casual contempt for everything so it looks sleek and beautiful and the close-ups of the food are are bordering on pornographic i mean they're just Mm. sumptuous and impossible and and glistening and they're held long enough that you can start to think that doesn't look that's kind of gross that doesn't look appealing anymore (laughs) even the way that uh that margot eats her cheeseburger is you know wolfish she's just devouring it um which is great, but also it misses the it misses the mark of a commercial treatment of food. Like it doesn't glorify the the food. You're, you're with it long enough to start to see it the way that slow sees it, which is just as a, a mechanism to keep himself in business.
1: It's mm. the product. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So yeah, you don't come away from the movie thinking how delicious everything looked. Oh Although totally. I, I did kind of want a cheeseburger after I saw it the first time. But if you yeah, yeah if your points of reference are Hell's Kitchen, like. Sloic is a much less demanding chef. He does seem to genuinely care for everyone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and maybe the slight sadness of what he's doing, maybe that's Fine's choice, because it's not in the mm-hmm. script. Nothing he says has the regret. It's all about disgust. But the fact that he underplays it and that he is sort of mm-hmm. sorrowful for everything he's doing, that that was something that struck me second time mm-hmm.
1: through. For sure. That also makes me now wonder, like, you know, if we're digging into sort of what, what what is the backstory of this plan or whatever that he's put together, it's like how much camaraderie as well was built throughout devising the plan, because from what I remember, the murder wasn't even his idea.
0: Oh, You know, I don't.
1: Like, I'm pretty sure it's the that female, the female sous chef who is like, like after everybody runs away and then they all get caught, she was like, yeah, that. The murder was actually my, or it was actually my idea to kill everybody or something like that.
0: I don't remember that. Was it the one murder or all of it?
1: I think all of it, it was sort of my understanding, but.
0: Well, I guess a good chef, you know, takes, takes advice and, and uses yes. all the good ideas. So he still gets credit.
1: <laughs> and takes credit for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally.
0: Uh, but no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true. Margot will eventually explain it to everybody. I do kind of want a sequel. I want to catch up to that character 15 years later and see what's going on with her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that a story you could literally dine out on for the rest of your life? Mean, because it would be. That's the thing, right? Like she will have cachet now because she was there, she was the survivor. Mm. So she'll, uh, she'll constantly be getting you know overtures from other chefs who want to know the secrets and how they did it because slow a legend now
1: totally but then uh, that also makes me wonder like to what extent do you think she's really really out there telling the story you know like she definitely seems like the type of person who has a bit of like a double life going and doesn't want people up in her shit, right yeah that's true yeah she can avoid
0: the police she'll be fine yeah yeah there's no record of her she's not supposed to be there yeah
1: for all intents and purposes she wasn't there <laughs>
0: yeah i guess the ex gets all the attention if she wants it, and then she'd be a horrible mm. person and she'd be worthy of punishment as well. <laughs> See, I love a simplistic moral universe. It's just its just easier.
1: <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. If only everything were like that.
0: <laughs> but this does kind of bring me, this was the thing that I wanted to tease out about mm. your short, which is also about the presumptions of people from different spheres, from different classes, mm-hmm. right? And the way those are broken down. So, and I, I'll set up the, the most basic premise of it in the in the intro, but feel free to go into whatever detail you want. But um, was that the reason is that was that the driving force behind it? Or did it evolve out of the characters? How did how did you get there? How did you create it?
1: Hmm, I guess it kind of came out of oh, because the short film is, is a, like, first, I wrote a feature script. And then the short fi- the short film is essentially like, the like pivotal scene oh. in the feature script.
0: Okay, that um, makes sense.
1: Yeah, because like, you know I what, I was itching to do a short film. And I also wanted to thought it might be cool to do like a proof of concept type thing. And uh, yeah, I felt like a good scene that like that was, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Self-contained, I guess, yeah, so that's yeah, sure. like, a good kind of closed uh, story. Um, yeah, so I think first it kind of came with the characters uh, and just thinking that it would be interesting to put these kind of seemingly opposite people together but i definitely believe that everybody kind of has a bit of a duality to them and so i definitely see the characters as being two sides of the same coin um and so just really wanting to like dig into what are as you said what are the expectations that each have of the other and how are they kind of being flipped on their heads
0: you know yeah and so the hmm well now i definitely don't want to give anything away to people but the short is just a a chamber piece, like it's a two hander, two people in you know, a in a house talking. How do you as a, as a director approach something like that that is that is just dialogue driven? You know, we have to be the camera has to be in the right place to catch reactions and all, but the the conversation is the star, right? So you're you're building a space for these characters to exist.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think mostly I thought about I thought about it as theater almost. You know, like try to get as much rehearsal with the actors as possible beforehand. Um, Just to like, not only kind of build the chemistry between between them and like their understanding of each other's relationships, but also to just like discover and play and just like, yeah, find new things and go deeper into the material in the ways that I hadn't necessarily expected when I was writing or conceiving of the idea. Uh, Yeah. So I think, because as you said, the entire thing kind of all takes place essentially in one room. Um, and so really just approaching it as as like a play and seeing each moment for what it was and finding the like the little growth and the changes and the twists and the turns. Because obviously in a piece that is just two people kind of talking and in a room, it can it can flatline, I think. <laughs> I think oh, it's very really yeah, hard no, to you... keep the ball in the air.
0: Yeah, it can't be it can't be too calm right like there's got to mm. be a suggestion of something in in this case it's attraction and and fear right nervous mm. nervous attraction but it's just it's interesting to watch actors come at something where you know it's it's the thing i love about two-handers is that you have nothing else you really only have the other person and the moment and the and the, the, the intention of the scene mm-hmm. i was some screenwriter Guru saying that if you boil down even the most epic film, you realize that it's it's never more than two or three people having conversations, and that's where the crux of it all is. And there can be action Mm -hmm. sequences, and there can be love scenes, and all of that. But generally, the things that drive the plot are the exchange of information and the emotional connections that are forged. And this is all about that. So every line is sort of weighted and 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 heavy. Like how once once you extracted this scene for the short. Did you revise it further? Like, did you find that you had to kind of reevaluate what you'd wanted from it?
1: Uh there were definitely like little moments here and there, like things that we found through, I think, rehearsal that like kind of ended up in the script. Uh, but yeah, I think the North Star really was just the fascination and keeping that as sort of like I don't know. I don't know if main objective is really the word, but just thinking about like how the how the camera is capturing all of it. But then also how each actor is experiencing the other actor and that reminding ourselves that like, we want to feel their, fascin- their fascination for each other for sure. But then it's also the audience's fascination of like, I just want to get to know you and what it is that you're hiding. Yeah. But like, yeah, like I, I feel like the entire the entire story is just about that careful give and take of like, I want to reveal myself, but I'm also wanting to kind of hold my cards back, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like any first date, I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Although I have to ask about the bubblegum vodka because why? <laughs> it sounds horrible. Oh gosh.
1: I didn't realize that was so like controversial because so many people have said that. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> But yes, when I was, uh, when I was 19, I used to drink a lot of bubble gum vodka with seven up. That was, that was the drink. It was nice and sweet.
0: <laughs> it definitely does give us a sense of how young she is. Right. Yeah. Cause it is like with I, my introduction to hard liquor was probably the fuzzy navel when I was mm. at a party somewhere when I was a teenager. And that's disgusting in <laughs> retrospect. I know. Right. But when you're young you feel sophisticated, just being able to have an alcohol. That you exactly. can drink without making a face, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a nice touch, but it's just one of those things where I'm my, my busy. Re- I read the label and I recoiled and then I had to get back in. <laughs> oh, no. that's Don't do that. <laughs> but it does work. Mm. So is the, the question I usually ask at the end of the podcast is, is there anything from the film we've talked about that you borrowed or stolen or lifted or outright or would homage? Is there anything, given how recent the menu is, is there anything that you – will grab from it going forwards? Is there something you want to sort of homage or or just full on uh, steal?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think just the overall experience of it that I'm like, I want to create something that makes me or, you know, other audiences feel like that. Like, I think that that was, again, from all of the films that really stood out to me at TIFF this past year is like the ones that, I love the most are the ones that surprised me, the ones that I felt like I could have never come up with that, <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. Uh, and so it's that thing of like, okay, now going forward, like, how do I write something that I would never write,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't even know. It's so, like, anybody trying to directly rip it off is going to get called out immediately, right? Because it's so specific. There's no way mm. to do this that, that isn't this. Mm-hmm. So maybe just have a character who's seen some stuff, (laughs) you know, Margot floats by in the background or something like that. That would be great if the perpetual recurring character from other people's movies just finds their way into other people's work. That could be fun. (laughs) That's
1: funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's just about creating something that feels unexpected.
0: I look forward to it.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: My thanks to Murray Peters, whose first short film, Woman Meets Girl, premieres at the Toronto Black Film Festival and the Queer Screen 30th Mardi Gras Film Festival in Sydney, Australia on Saturday, February 18th, which has to be some kind of cool first. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Murray on Twitter at Peters, all one word, and you can find the menu on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Hulu in the US and Disney Plus everywhere else, and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. And, of course, I'm an idiot. The chef I mentioned earlier is Andrew Carmelini, and he did an episode of this podcast. He picked the Blues Brothers. Go look it up. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Willner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.